0: Good morning, dear Intriguer, and welcome to Intrigue Out Loud. On today's show, I'm joined by Intrigue co-founder John Fowler to discuss a historic visit to China and a new visa-free travel program in Africa. It's all coming up.
1: Hey, John. How are you? Very well, Ethan. I'm uh, increasingly excited that we're all getting together. The Team Intrigue's getting together in Austin, Texas this weekend. Five, well, four four and a bit days away.
0: The listeners won't know this, but we're, we're flying in. You and I are lucky. <laughs> you and I are extremely lucky to be flying. Right. Respectively, <laughs> I think you're coming from L.A. I, yeah, I'm coming a couple from hours. D.C. A <laughs> couple hours. We've got uh, our, our managing editor, J.D., flying in from... North of Brisbane, Australia. I think he he might be on a a bus right now to the airport as we speak. Yeah, what did he say? He said fifty
1: hours uh, travel time. Fifty hours back.
0: total. Yeah, for about <laughs> seventy two hours on the ground. So you got to make it worth his while. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, well, in the meantime, uh, John, we've got a big story to cover, and it feels like this story is sort of tailor made for you. Uh, <laughs> kind of like they they cooked it up in a lab just for you. It combines. I think two of your biggest interests, Uh, China, of course, being one of them uh, and being Australian. Uh, and and the story here, of course, is uh,
1: Prime Minister Anthony Albanese's <laughs> visit to Beijing. Well, I'm not I'm not sort of sure that being Australian is uh, as an interest. I didn't have much choice in the matter, but yeah. uh, a good a good segue. St- state non- of existence, exactly. A good segue. <laughs> a good effort, nonetheless. Um, but no, th- this is a a huge story, and, and not just in Australia. I think right around the region and the world. Um, you know, not least because the current Prime Minister Anthony Albanese's visit. This it coincides with the 50-year anniversary of a former Australian Prime Minister, a guy by the name of Gough Whitlam. um, He had a historic meeting with Mao Zedong in early November 1973, um, and that was to celebrate the sort of opening of Australia-China diplomatic relations, and and this this visit uh, this past weekend kind of coincided with that. So there was this nice parallel um, between the characters involved in, in that visit and the characters involved in the visit this weekend. Um, you know, I think first off, we have Xi, who's often compared to or sort of you know, sits alongside Mao as an incredibly dominant Chinese leader. He's authoritarian. You know, he probably wouldn't love that comparison for lots of reasons, but, you know, it's there. Um, they both had- you Probably would like it for other reasons. Well, exactly. And, and the absolute power they wield over their, their country and the solidification of the Communist Party over China, they would like that comparison for sure. Right. Um, and then on the other side, Albanese- uh like gough whitlam he hails from the same party the labor party in australia which is the sort of center uh center left party um and it, and he's just come to power following a string of conservative more china hawkish prime ministers um from from the liberal party which is the sort of center right party in australia um so you know long story short the the visit was uh full of Imagery, including Albanese and his foreign minister, Penny Wong, going to the echo wall of the Temple of Heaven in Beijing, somewhere I've been myself, um, to pay homage to a photo that was taken during Whitlam's visit in 1973, where the giant Prime Minister, Whitlam was about I don't know, six foot five or something like that, he's leaning up against this wall with his ear. So they, they kind of went to not quite recreate it, but at least. Uh, make make the obvious parallel uh, for the media so that photos and headlines could be written. That's
0: fascinating, John. Uh, I'm, I'm not at all convinced that Goff
1: is a real name, but I'll take
0: your word for it. Uh, it's an odd one, isn't it? Yeah. It, it sure is. Yeah, one of those you know, mid-century sort of names that they've exactly. uh, since retired. Uh, but the, you, know, you, you pointed this out. It sounds like more than a coincidence. It sounds like Albanese sort of uh, uh, invoking Whitlam's memory Maybe as some sort of signal. Uh, so, what is the signal? What 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 was the state of Australia-China relations
1: back in Whitlam's day? Yeah, well, like like I said, Whitlam. The visit was the start or the opening of diplomatic relations with the People's Republic of China, PRC, the current Chinese government, um, in 1973. Uh, actually, Gough Whitlam actually visited China earlier when he was the leader of the opposition, I think, in 1971. Um, and that was even before the very, very famous um, secret trip of, of US Secretary of State Henry Kissinger when he went to visit China to sort of open up relations for Nixon um, a couple of years later. So I think... Whitlam took a real significant political risk in going at that time. Um, You know, again, U.S. didn't have diplomatic relations at that time. um, And it was a real wedge issue. China was a wedge issue in Australian politics. Um, You know, the Liberal Party was using communism, uh, fears of communism, um, to its political advantage at the time. Uh, And I think we probably, Australia probably wanted to stick to the U.S. position a little a little bit more closely. Um, actually, just a few years before Whitlam took office, back in 1966, another former prime minister, uh, Harold Holt, he recognised the Republic of China. Now you got to be careful. the Republic of China is actually the name for the Taiwanese government. Um, so he recognised Taiwan as an independent country, um, sent an island an ambassador to the island uh, for the first time, and that obviously enraged the the Communist Party in China, the PRC. So that at that time australia China relations were obviously in the doldrums, really low, um, actually just as an aside, Harold Holt famously drowned uh, off the coast uh, i think off off the coast of Victoria i think in december nineteen sixty seven while he was prime minister and you can imagine the kinds of conspiracy theories that cropped up about you know bad relationship <laughs> with china Prime Minister goes missing so um, yeah the, look in a word relations weren't great before whitlam and and how about Today. I mean, are there are there more parallels to be drawn? Yeah. I mean, you've got to be careful drawing these kinds of parallels. Um, but I think I think it's certainly been a tough seven or eight years in the Australia-China relationship. Um, you know, I draw no conclusions from the fact that about the time I started my diplomatic posting in China was about the time that relations started to go Uh-oh. south. We'll <laughs> leave that there. Um, <laughs> but no, and, and I guess another a parallel with Whitlam's visit is that it's a huge deal um, for Albanese to go because of that seven or eight tough years in the Australia-China relationship. Uh, Prime Minister hasn't visited since I think 2016. Um, so that's a big deal in and of itself. So, you know, before the kind of downturn, let's call it 2016, 2017 for Australia and China, they generally collaborated on trade fairly well. Um, you know, they they had a, a relatively functional working diplomatic relationship. Um, and, you know, there are plenty of reasons and probably no single reason explains the reason that um, that relations started to go south. But by the time that Another former Prime Minister, Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison, uh, called for an ind- independent inquiry into the origins of COVID. I think he did that in 2020. You know, the relations again were at an absolute bottom, and again you can imagine why. Um, so China kind of retaliated economically. Um, I think you could say they launched a trade war. Um, you know, imposed massive tariffs on several of Australia's largest exports, 40 uh, percent. 40% on cotton, 80% on barley, 200% on wine, all really key exports for the Australian economy, um, because China's by far the biggest market for Australian producers of those kinds of goods. Um, so, you know, the economic fallout had a real, real um, knock on effect and had the potential to be quite significant. Um, at the same time, China's behavior across the broader region, you know, the South China Sea, um, Pacific, uh, you know, plenty of, plenty of other areas, it's been getting bolder and bolder. Um, so, Australia has been kind of building out its military alliances. It joined AUKUS. Folks might remember that. Um, and it's got, a, yeah, and now it's got American troops stationed in, in, in Darwin in the north of Australia. So, these kind of two dynamics happening at the same time, that that, that meant that relations got pretty bad there. Well, John, if things were were that bad, how did we get to the point where this visit, was even possible? It's a great question. I think a few things. Uh, the first one is that Australia changed from uh, almost a decade of Liberal Party government in Australia, and they elected the Labour Party uh, last year. Um, and I think this new Labour government, you know, it gives, it, it gives a kind of break in, in Australian government policy, but it also gave a chance for the new Australian incoming government at the time to sort of start saying the right things that then gives the Chinese political machine the opportunity, should they so wish to take it, to kind of thaw relations. Um, and I think China wanted to do that um, and probably still wants to do that um, for a couple of reasons. You know, firstly, uh, Albanese, Prime Minister Albanese, Foreign Minister Wong and, and other officials have made a real concerted and obvious effort to turn down the kind of rhetorical temperature um, on, on some of China's actions in the region. I mean, I don't think I don't think that they're actually doing much substantively less, but they're just talking about it less and probably talking about it more delicately. Um, you know, I think I think you hear things like, you know, right. we'll, we'll cooperate where we can, disagree where we must is a tagline that I think they're using and disagree behind closed doors, but don't amplify your differences. This idea that, you know, you can kind of keep things um, under wraps. Uh, and I think the strategy has been pretty, pretty effective so far. China's reduced tariffs on Bali um, back in August. Um, and I think Albanese's top priority for this visit just gone on the weekend is to kind of convince Beijing to do more of that, to lift more of those tariffs. Um, and then you know, there's obviously the opportunity of this visit to solidify a, a reopening of dialogue, of of connections between top officials in both countries, in leadership in both countries, so that the next time there's an issue, um, and you know there will be an issue, there's yeah. <laughs> more time to talk things through again behind closed doors. That that idea of doing things directly. Um, so you know, I don't I don't think there's any ma- major breakthroughs from from these kinds of visits. Um, you know, we heard some reporting that the meeting between Xi and Albanese was pretty affable, chatted about pandas and Tas- Tasmanian devils. Uh, I, think the, <laughs> I know the AP reported apparently that um, uh, when Albanese said that t- Tasmanian devils probably weren't as cute as pandas, Xi Jinping replied that not all pandas are cute. And he cited the kung fu movie, kung fu panda movie. So, <laughs> so I mean, you've got your views. You've got, you've got Xi Jinping's views no, on that particular movie, if nothing else.
0: <laughs> I mean, can you weigh in on it? Can you weigh in on this and, and settle? I, this h- for I this? haven't seen
1: it. I'm afraid. Well,
0: just generally, pandas versus pandas are Tasmanian much devils. Okay,
1: pandas are much cuter. Oh, like okay. no question. Tasmanian right. devils are fierce little fellas. You don't mind this. You don't mind that on the record. <laughs> I Don't mind that on the record. I think it's. Right. I think it's. Uh, I it's, think it's unarguable. <laughs> <laughs> It'll stay then. Well,
0: John, I'm mindful of, of something you said earlier. Uh, I, I love I love history. love all the historical parallels you, you, you drew there. You know, that, that Whitlam's initial visit in 1971 actually preceded Kissinger's famous visit. Right. That seems like another parallel because Albanese's visit comes just about a week before Xi and Biden, President Biden, are set to meet yes. at the Apex
1: Summit in San Francisco. Yeah, exactly. I mean, obviously, there's a very, very different context here than than back in the early 70s. But I think it sort of goes to show the role that middle, plow, uh, middle powers like Australia can kind of play... In an era of great power competition now you know i don't know that albanese was necessarily prepping the ground for that meeting or doing anything like that but it, it does sort of show that australia can go and be part of that and you know just generally help dial down the temperature across the region between the west and and, and china and other countries um you know obviously australia is squarely in the u.s camp um you know culturally politically all that kind of stuff Um, But I think uh, Albanese understands that Australia isn't big enough to confront China like the U.S. can. We can't do it. We we, we can't afford to confront China, um, even if they wanted to, which I don't think the the Albanese government does want to. um, Because the simple fact is Australia is still very dependent on the Chinese economy. So I think there's this space that Albanese thinks that um, can kind of be created between, um, you know, the cultural and political alignment with the U.S., as I said, and dealing with China on its kind of own terms. Um, you know, I think there's a clip that we had that we were going to play of Albanese speaking to reporters just outside the Echo Wall in Beijing on Monday. That kind of shows that.
0: Uh, so it's an important relationship. Uh, we it has changed in 50 years. China has changed, Australia has changed, and the relationship has changed. Uh, we're dealing with strategic competition uh, in the in the region. Uh, what is important and what needs to be consistent is the way that. Australia deals with our international relations, uh, that we're upfront, that we're respectful, that we deal through diplomacy. And I'm reminded of uh, uh, Kirk Campbell's uh, comments saying diplomacy's back. And uh, we engage uh, in that way in Australia's national interest. It is in our interest to have positive relations Right. And, and Kurt Campbell, being, of course, the uh, incoming deputy US Secretary of State. You heard Albanese mention his name.
1: Right. Exactly. And, you know, I, I think if I might just very briefly kind of opine for a bit here, I, I, obviously it goes without saying that the less tension in these types of relationships, the better. The less tension between the EU, China, Australia, all, all these countries, it's a good thing. Um, you know, Australia isn't a major global player like those countries, but it's not insignificant either. and it's, And it's important in that region, in Asia. Um, so it's good. It's a good thing that the China's Chinese relationship is getting better. But it's very easy to talk about Tasmanian devils and barley and pandas and their, all, the, all those nice things that people kind of agree on. Um, and you heard Albanese talk about in that clip being about being upfront and respectful. Um, and the reality is that in China over the next decade is going to do a lot of things um, that Australia is going to have to take a position on. Uh, you know, again, South China Sea incursions, Chinese foreign investment, spying in Australia, which is an ever-present issue. Um, and that's before you get to issues like the Chinese military bases that you have seen potentially in the South Pacific, uh, the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, uh, and of course, the big one, Taiwan. So I think we can, we can celebrate these moments, but I think the really telling important moments will come when China chooses, if it does choose, to push the Australian government on those issues um, you know, like Whitlam before him, I think Albanese is hopeful that the issues when they do arise, and I really do think they will arise, he's hopeful that they can be sorted out with diplomacy and talking, being respectful behind the scenes, which, you know, that, that in and of itself is something I think we should all all be getting behind.
0: Today's episode is sponsored by us. Yes, us. We're joining our friends at The Gist, The Elvest, Nice News, and Dollar Flight Club to give away $2,000 to one lucky winner. You heard me. $2,000. All you have to do to sign up is click the link in the show notes, add your name and email address, and if you're lucky, you'll have a couple grand at your door in time for Black Friday. You definitely don't want to miss this all right welcome back john one of the best things about europe in my experience is the fact that you can bounce around most countries without any sort of visa requirements you know you can pretty much just have a have a beer in austria and then go down to italy for a glass of wine in the same day and walk
1: right in and 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 your favorite part is the fact that you can walk right in not the beer or the wine or the
0: no 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 just the ease of the ease of travel
1: (laughs) (laughs) You're a man for administrative efficiencies. I see. Yes. Well, what what you're talking about obviously is the Schengen zone and that idea that you can just cross borders um, with ease. It's an incredible system, I think, um, not just because I'm a tourist that enjoys it like you, but also obviously for businesses and and workers in border areas who live in one country, they can be employed in another really easily. Obviously a lot of folks in in the UK are very upset about the fact that they can't do that anymore. Um, You know, I think the benefits are pretty clear. According to one survey, the the Schengen zone brings down trade cost by something like one point five percent. It doesn't sound like a lot as a as a percentage, but when you consider that you know we're talking about economies worth hundreds of billions of dollars, or even trade worth even more than that, you know it's a ton ton of money to be saving just uh, through through policy. So it, it's it's important,
0: right? And it's a really important, maybe even remarkable feature of the European Union. I mean, we we don't think about just. How much, uh, maybe, a miracle this is that these countries that were once constantly at war, with strictly demarcated, heavily fortified
1: borders, have now done away with those almost completely. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, the EU is a is a, is a bit of a miracle, and and the Schengen kind of zone, the Schengen policy, is is a big part of that. I mean, imagine telling a, a French person or a German back in 1940 or something like that that one day their countries would just have no borders and people would you know, in the border areas we chat each other's languages and move back and forth. It's, it's blue, Yeah, <laughs> blue. exactly. It's, yeah. it's remarkable. Um, but I think the reason we're talking about this, we buried the lead a bit, um, but uh, there's an, a similar effort underway in Africa to kind of create hmm. a visa-free travel and trade system. Um, I think that it's not a new system per se. I think they, they originally cooked up the idea in, back in 2016. Um, the African Union launched a, an African passport back then. That, that's only been issued to diplomats and, and, and officials, African Union officials so far. But um, there are some countries, Gambia, Benin, and the Seychelles, that are pretty keen on the idea. They've taken it and they've run with it, and they've started offering visa-free travel for African nationals under this idea of, of a kind of free movement zone um, and then last week we had president Kagame of rwanda announced that uh, rwanda would do the same thing and then president ru of kenya said that uh, kenya would also join the program by the end of this year kenya out of those countries rwanda as well but kenya out of those is the biggest deal i think because it's you know it's the one of the continent's biggest economies um and it's arguably one of its most desirable tourist destinations as well um so it has it, this policy has a potential for a huge impact, except for the fact that Kenya ranked in the bottom half of the African Union's openness index last year. So there could be potentially a huge gain to be made um, from this policy if, if Kenya goes through with it. Um, and and Ruto really singing a different tune, I think, at the moment. He, at a conference last month, he said, um, and, and here's a quote, he said, when people cannot travel, business people cannot travel, entrepreneurs cannot travel, we all become net losers. Um, and then the whole room apparently stood and applauded and it was uh good vibes all around imagine a world john where entrepreneurs can't imagine.
0: travel it's, I, I it's know. not a word, it's, it's not, not a world you would want to live in no <laughs> so a, a few questions from here i mean first visa free travel sounds great but the other feature of the european union is free trade a common market common currency etc uh you know among its members is
1: that on the table in africa too yeah that, that's an interesting question because it, it you wonder if you can have one without the others, right? Whether they can exist independently or it's part of a broader system. And, and I wouldn't expect a common market or a common currency in Africa anytime soon. Um, free trade is certainly on the table. Um, you know, back in 2019, the African continental free trade area actually came into effect um, now that rollout has been plagued but plagued by delays you know COVID happened right as they were trying to get it up and running um and there's been implement implementation challenges as you as you might imagine but most uh, most countries in africa have signed up to participate so there's clearly political will to be involved um and if slash when it's fully implemented the, divi- the dividends you know huge enormous um it'll be the world's largest free trading area um the minute it comes into effect uh, it, it'll encompass over billion people are included in that area. Um, And according to the World Bank, they say it'll help lift, you know, about 30 million people out of poverty. So huge gains to be made.
0: And what do you see as the obstacles to this, I mean, you know, free trade, this broader
1: liberalization program in Africa? Well, security is the big one, right? That's the obvious one. Um, You know, one of many reasons the Schengen zone works so well is because Europe is by and large a peaceful place now. You know, not saying they don't have their issues, migration, illegal trafficking, all these kinds of things are challenges. But, you know, when you compare it to its past, it is a very, very peaceful continent. Um, And if you compare it to parts of Africa, I mean, well, actually, really the security situation between Europe and Africa isn't comparable. You know, I, I doubt that Rwanda... Uh, which has been more or less at war with the DRC for thirty odd years, you know. I, I don't think they're about to kind of get rid of all their border infrastructure and, and welcome welcome free travel across that border just because they want you know visa free travel for business and they think it's a good idea. You know, so there's some really serious challenges, um, and, and you know, I think if we're being honest, the this. This idea that we're going to have a free travel zone in Africa is a bit more about eliminating the fees and, and the administrative burden on applying for visas rather than kind of eliminating border controls like a Schengen zone might have. So it's kind of about reducing the red tape, perhaps, and, and the costs rather than getting rid of borders. Um, but, you know, I, I think the Schengen zone, you know, that wasn't built in the day. The EU wasn't built in the day. And I think if these kinds of policies, um, are enacted and they go well and people see change. They have the potential to really change Africa in a big way. Um, so I think these kinds of things are inf- exciting first steps, let's put it that way. It's exciting indeed. Uh, I don't know
0: what they drink with their beverage of choices in Rwanda and Kenya, but I'm excited to find out. You and me both. You and me
1: both, Ethan. <laughs> <laughs>
0: And that's going to do it for me. By the way, if you're anything like me, you've had an awfully difficult time staying off social media the past few weeks. But it's nice to know that there are people all around the world that are just as glued to Twitter as I am. Check out the International Intrigue newsletter to see what they've been tweeting about. In the meantime, I'm Ethan Plotkin. See you on Friday.